This message was recorded live at the Ark Church in Conroe, Texas. I, uh, I've always liked to study culture. Culture is, is attitudes, behaviors, values that influence an organization or a group, characteristics. And uh, you have staff culture and church culture, national culture. In, in my very young lifetime, no, no laughter. That's not the appropriate time to laugh. <laughs> I've seen a lot of things that have influenced our culture. And three immediately come to mind. Uh, the first one is uh, education. Uh, my father graduated from college in 1956. Let's try this again. He was the very first one who uh, graduated from college from his very rural, uh, very poverty-stricken Georgia background, and uh, that was a pretty big deal. Uh, Joey's mom is the daughter of Italian immigrants, and she was the very first one to graduate from high school, and that was considered a, a big deal in New York at that time. And nowadays, we have education that's changed so dramatically, you can sit at home and get a degree. In fact, you can get an advanced degree. And so we've seen education change over the years. We've seen technology change. I mean, right now, all of you have a a phone, which hopefully is in your pocket and on silence, that uh, has more computing power than the very first Apollo rocket. And our ability to communicate and to touch base with one another has been dramatically influenced. I, I don't know that that's always for the, for the good. A young mom was in a dressing room trying on jeans, and she took a picture in the mirror and texted it to her husband, who was at home watching the kids. She said, do these jeans make me look fat? That's a dangerous question. But he's a smart husband. And he wrote back, no, you know, N-O-O-O-O-O-O-O. At least that's what he thought he wrote back. And then autocorrect kicked in. And she received a text that said, moo. He hasn't seen her in two days. <laughs> and then he started to see her just a little bit out of his right eye, but uh, <laughs> technology has changed. And it certainly has influenced our, our culture, uh, science and medicine, uh, medical science dramatically influenced. If, you know, 50 years ago, if you got a certain diagnosis, you didn't have a chance. And today, well, you got, we've got much more of a fighting chance. And we've seen uh, lifespans increase, infant mortality rates have decreased, and, some of the, of the advancements in science and medicine have been outstanding. But as we look at our cultures, our national culture, I, I can tell you something that, that is, is a little troubling. With all of our advancements, we still have problems. I mean, with all of our education, we've not been able to educate prejudice and hate out of our society. With all the technology we have, and all the abilities to communicate, we're still considered the most lonely, isolated generation ever. And medical science, well, may they, they may help depression, but they haven't cured it, and they haven't cured anxiety. And sometimes medical science can just look at you and shake their head and go, there's nothing we can do. As a church, I believe our role is to look at culture and not be angry at culture and against culture, it's also not to be an echo of culture, but it's to offer alternatives to culture, answers. 
Because if you buy into the idea that you're a lot more than just a body and a mind, that you're a spiritual being, then we begin to recognize that spiritual problems need spiritual answers. And the most powerful forces on this earth are not nuclear, and it's certainly not the Texas power grid. The most powerful forces on this earth are going to be faith and hope and love. And Easter equals hope. Hope is a favorable expectation. It's, a, it's an expectation of good. In fact, Peter, when he was writing to the church in 1 Peter, he wrote this verse. He said, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When God raised Jesus from the dead, we don't just have a, a doctrine or a philosophy. We have a living hope, a hope that says for 2,000 years, it says regardless of what happens around us, there's a hope that's real, and the hope is in a person and in the power of God. A number of years ago, an elderly lady realized she was reaching the last of her days, and so she's very planned, very, very pragmatic, and she called in one of her local pastors, and she said, I want to plan my funeral. She had everything planned. She had the songs. She had the, the scriptures. She had the pallbearers. She told him what she was going to wear. She wanted her favorite Bible buried with her, and he, he was taking notes. And when he got up to leave, she said, oh, Pastor, she said one more thing. She said, make sure you bury me with a fork in my right hand. He said, you're going to have to help me with that. And she said, well, she said, I've grown up in church. I've been to countless potlucks and socials. She said, when they would clear all the dishes away, she said, when the hostess would lean over and look at me and go, keep your fork, she said, I knew something good was coming. It was a chocolate cake or a deep dish apple pie. She said, I knew the best was yet to come. She said, when, so when they see me in that casket with my fork in my hand, and they say, what's with the fork? You tell them, I said, the best is yet to come. And that's the hope that we have in Christ. Today, I want to uh, paint a little different picture of Easter for you, if I could, and, and paint a picture of three groups at the cross, around the cross. You see a lot of chapters uh, developed around the cross and the crucifixion and the resurrection because it's so important. And these three groups are maybe a group that you find yourself in. The first one is a group that actually opposed and rejected Jesus. Here's Luke's account. And when they come to the place called Calvary there, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. He's the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. These are a group of people that opposed Jesus and rejected him. Roman soldiers were brutal. They were known for being some of the most brutal soldiers, and they had no respect for anyone that they conquered. To them... Jesus was just another weak Jew. And they mocked him. You're the king, come down from the cross. The religious leaders also mocked him. They intellectually did not get Jesus. He just didn't add up for them. Didn't come from the right training, didn't come from the right background. Everything he did would contradicted their beliefs and he, he challenged their hierarchy of power. He really disrupted their plan. And both of these 
groups were the ones that looked at Jesus and said, look, if you're the king, prove it. That's their theme song, prove it to me. If you're really the Christ, prove it. Come down off the cross and prove that you're the real deal. That's one group. There's another group at the cross. They were sad and disappointed about Jesus. We see this verse in, in Luke. He says, and when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. Well, why'd they go home in deep sorrow? Well, of course, Jesus had died, but not only had Jesus died, but the idea that Jesus was going to bring them a better life. He was their ticket to a better life. See, so many of the Jews thought that Jesus was the coming Messiah, that he would actually give them freedom from Roman rule and that he would restore Israel to a position of power. So they were expecting all this grand and glorious stuff. And when he died on the cross, their hopes died with him. And their theme song would be, it's over. But there was one group, actually it was one individual at the cross who may have been the most unlikely individual that we see, but yet the Bible devotes some time to him. Because what he did was key. And that's the thief. Here's his story. One of the criminals who were hanging blasphemed him, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross, the other gospels tell us that Actually, both of them started out, they were one on his right, one on his left. Both of them started out rebuking and, and reviling Jesus, and one of them was blaspheming him. But somewhere along the line, I don't know, maybe if, if he watched how Jesus handled himself, maybe if he saw the, just the goodness, but something changed, and he made an adjustment in his heart. And he admitted he was guilty. He wasn't even trying to justify it. I, I, I'm, I'm guilty. And he also had the humility then, to call Jesus Lord and not a peer, not just a fellow criminal, Lord. And he said something that showed a whole lot of faith. He said, Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And what he was saying was, death is not the end. There's something more beyond this. And Jesus, you're, you're a king. Would you remember me when you come into your, your kingdom? He must have believed that Jesus was good because he had done nothing to earn that. But he was the only one that Jesus gave a promise to. Jesus looked at him and said, you're going to be with me in paradise. Three groups. You know those three groups still exist today? You know there are folks that still oppose and reject Jesus today? But if you look back at that group, you, you think about them and you think if there's any group that Jesus would have condemned, it would have been those who crucified him physically, and those who opposed him and mocked him. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't like being insulted at all. But imagine being insulted when you're in pain and dealing with all that pressure. And Jesus could have looked at that group, and from the cross, he could have spoken to them and said, I'm going to tell you something, all you boys are going to bust hell wide open. But he didn't. If there's any group he would have condemned, it would have been that group. And instead of forgiving them, I said, excuse me, instead of condemning he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He offered forgiveness to the group that hated him. Let me ask you a question. Have you, 
Have you been one maybe that's rejected Jesus or opposed him? Have you seen him as weak? You know, Christianity's weak. To be honest with you, Christianity is anything but weak. Have you said, you know, intellectually, I can't compromise myself by believing in Jesus? It's not an intellectual decision. It's a heart decision. And if you think Jesus will disrupt your plans, you're exactly right. He will disrupt your plans for his plans, and they're a whole lot better. And the wonderful news today is, if you've rejected him, he has never rejected you. And that door is still wide open, and forgiveness is still extended. How about the group that was sad and disappointed in Jesus? They thought it was over, but the resurrection proved they were wrong. You see, their thinking was limited. They were thinking in Jesus in terms of do something for Israel, free Israel. Restore Israel. But God had bigger plans. God's bigger plans was not to just restore and free Israel from Roman rule. His plans were to free all of mankind from sin and hell and death and the grave and sickness and everything that came with it. Freedom for everyone. And restoration, not of a nation, restoration of God and man that no longer would we have to be separated from God. God's plans were so much bigger than their plans. But they were sad and disappointed. Have you ever been that? Have you ever said to yourself, oh, it's over. I'll never love again. I'll never dream again. I'll, I'll never do business again. I'll never have a good family. Whatever. But oftentimes, people say, it's over. It's over. They just look at life and they go, it's over. You can, you can say that at a young age. It's over. But the resurrection proves it's not. In fact, Paul said this in Acts 27, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Listen, if he created the universe that we live in, he created this world and the air that we breathe, if he raised Jesus from the dead, he can raise dead dreams, dead marriages, dead life, dead finances. He can raise the dead today and still do it. Many of you who don't know me, don't know our story, know that uh, the ark is not our first church. In 1988, I, I left a good job in the Google it. And um, I moved my family to North Carolina. And we, uh, we, we were going to start a church there in North Carolina. And it was a very ill-conceived plan. And it, it didn't work at all. My parents left. We, uh, we finally quit. Took the one couple that was coming, got them placed in another church. It was just, man, it was bad. But not only was that bad, we were living in a little dark apartment, and our finances, my dad hired me, but he didn't have, he didn't have the wherewithal really to hire me, and so he couldn't pay me very much, and man, we were hurting financially. We were hurting so far financially, Joy used to alternate days on when she would actually eat because we had we'd gotten that low. I got a notice home one day from the state of North Carolina that said Matthew, who was in kindergarten at the time, that he was eligible for state-supported lunches. Now, there's no shame in that, but that's certainly not a red-letter day. Our finances were dead. And honestly, I was, I was down. I was depressed. I was sad because our finances were dead. Our, my, my dreams of doing anything were dead. And honestly, at 30 years old, I felt washed up. But God has a way of raising the dead. And he opened doors miraculously for us to come back to Texas 
I got a job, and in six months, he was able to turn our finances completely around so they were actually better than they ever had been in our entire lives. God can raise the dead. But there was still the problem of the dead dream. I mean, I got in business, and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm in business. I am never going back in ministry again. I'll be a wonderful volunteer. I'm not going to do anything in ministry again. And Joy would kept telling me, she said, I, I just know there's a church, Alan. I just know there's a church. There's a church. I would put my hand out. I'm like, do not talk to me about a church. And, and then, as in now, she ignored everything I said. <laughs> and she continued to say, Alan, I, I just believe there's a church. And crossing 336 on I-45 going south, I can tell you where it happened. It dropped in my heart in 1995, December, that we were going to have a church in Conroe, Texas. I went home and I told you, I said, we're going to have a church in Conroe. She, we'd been talking about starting a church in Switzerland. I mean, really, it was, a, it was a reality. People wanted us to come. Joy's braiding her hair. We're drinking hot chocolate. I mean, this is... <laughs> we're talking Switzerland. And then, and then I, I pull an okie doke, and I'm like, oh, no, it's not Switzerland. It's Conroe. She looked at me like a dog that heard a dog whistle. She went... <laughs> Conroe. So for those of you that think she knows everything, no, she doesn't. <laughs> but she looked at me funny. She said, Conroe, I said... I believe it's Conroe. This is our 25th Easter. And you're sitting in a resurrected church. A church that God raised a dream from the dead. You said, well, that's great, Alan. I bet God does that for preachers. No. God does that for anyone will humbly just approach him and say, Lord, I don't have all the plans. I'm not going to try to fit you into my plans. What is your plan? It's a perfect fit. And no longer sad and disappointed, God can raise the dead to life. The third group is the group I hope you're in. And it's the group that has the humility to recognize we're in need of a Savior. That we're guilty before God. I know people don't like to hear that. I hear some people look at me now and go, you don't understand, I'm the, I'm the best one in my whole family. Well, that's great. I hope you're the best one in your family. In fact, you could be the best one on your whole block. You could even be the best one in your community. In fact, you could be the best person in Texas. And it's still not good enough. The Bible said all of us have sinned and come short of God's glory. We need a Savior. And it takes humility to admit that. It also takes humility to recognize that Jesus is not a historical figure. He's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And acknowledge that by calling him Lord. And the faith to believe that God raised him from the dead. And if you profess him with your mouth, there's a promise that applies to you. That promise is one of the most basic ones. In fact, we, we heard a song about it today. It's in John 3.16. You know this one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For those who simply don't make an intellectual decision, for those who make a heart decision, I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. I confess him as my Lord. There's eternal life for you. That impacts today. That impacts eternity. 
you share things like this and oftentimes in people's thoughts they go, yeah, but you don't realize what I've done. You don't realize the mistakes I've made. Preacher, you don't know my life. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. And you're right, I don't. But I know the one who loves you and forgave you. And I also know the one who can take our mistakes and failures and faults and shortcomings and turn them into something beautiful. 150 years ago, in a Scottish inn, some fishermen were relaxing at the end of the day, telling fish stories. And one of them was telling about this huge fish he caught, and he, he threw his hands out wide, and he knocked a pot of tea out of a server's hand that hit a whitewashed wall and broke against the wall and created this brown tea splotch. The owner came out and looked at it, and he went, we're going to have to whitewash the whole wall. It's, there's no way we'll get that tea stain out. From the back of the room, a voice spoke up and said, perhaps not. They turned and looked around and a man stood up. They didn't know who he was. He was a stranger. And uh, he said, let me work with him. He said, let me work with that stain for a little bit. Talk to, his, talk to the owner. He said, if you like what I've done, you can keep it. He said, if you don't, you can just whitewash over the wall again. Owner thought he didn't have anything to lose, so he let him. The guy goes back and he gets a box out and he opens the box. He's got paintbrushes and pencils and oil and and, and pigment. And he walks over to the stain. He begins to take some of the stain and some of the blotches and he begins to fill in and add bits of color here and there. What he wound up creating was a beautiful picture of a, of a magnificent stag with a magnificent rack of antlers, something like this. This painting was done by a man, very famous in Great Britain. After the man finished the painting on the wall, he, he wrote his name and left. When the owner saw the name, he went, oh, he said, oh my gosh. He said, do you realize who that was? He said, that was E.H. That was e. Landier. In fact, Sir Edwin Landier was probably the most famous British painter and sculptor of animals. Well-known, knighted. He's got paintings and sculptings that are in London and in Scotland. He does beautiful work. A blotch, a stain, in the hands of someone who is a master, changed everything. Your faults, your failures, my faults, my failures, disappointments. Listen, he can take them and turn them into something beautiful. Say, so well, who's that for? Simply for those who humble their hearts and believe. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads if you would and close your eyes. We're going to, if you're watching online, you can do that with us. We're going to say a prayer here in just a moment. Please, if no one could, if you just give just a couple of minutes, and we'll be out. Said your bow, eyes are closed. A question for you. Are you one today that realized, hey, maybe I've rejected Jesus? Or maybe you're not just rejected him, but it just hasn't been for you. And you're not sure today where you stand with him. Or maybe you're one that at one point in time in your life, you said, you know, I, I did receive Jesus as my Lord, but I've gotten so far away. I want to say a simple prayer today. We're not going to have you stand up or come to the front. That's not our intent to embarrass or shine the light on anybody. But sitting right there in your chair, right there at home, you can make a decision today that changes everything. We're going to say a prayer with you. If you would like to be in on this prayer, if you'd like to say, Alan, I need to know in my heart where I stand with God. I need to know that I can come back to him and, and he'll, he'll receive me and I can start this all over again. I want that in my heart. I'm only asking you to do one thing. I ask you just to raise your hand. If you shoot your hand up real quickly across this auditorium, say, Alan, would you pray for me? I'd like to be in on your prayers. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of humility. Anybody else to say, Alan, would you pray for me? I'd like to be in on these prayers. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Said your bowed and eyes are closed. We're going to say that prayer. Now, maybe you didn't lift your hand, but deep inside you wanted to. But you can still jump in on this prayer. This is the heart prayer. God sees hands, it also sees hearts. So we're going to pray this prayer with you as a church family. At home, you can pray it. If you're by yourself, pray it out loud. If you're with others, pray it quietly. Here, we're going to pray it together as a church family. Pray it out loud so you can hear it. Say, dear God, I know mankind needs a Savior. I know I can't save myself. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And God raised you from the dead. Right now, I confess you as my Lord, as my Savior, as the one who forgives me and restores me. Thank you, Jesus. My past is forgiven. I have a relationship with you. I'm a new creation in Christ because I've said yes to you. His heads are still bowed. Heavenly Father, thank you for those that prayed that prayer, for those who have stepped out of darkness into light and for those who've come back home. Father, we rejoice with them at a decision that impacts their life today and it'll impact their life for eternity. What a wonderful thing. And Father, for the rest of us, thank you that even though we've done things that haven't earned anything, you've never rejected us. You've offered us your forgiveness. You've done things in our lives and we are eternally grateful for the fact that you raised Jesus from the dead and he's alive forevermore. We have a living king and a living hope. Thank you for that. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For more about The Ark, visit thearkchurch.com.